Okay, so we cut to Lavinia's and uh, Augustus and Penance are alone in a room. Uh, I would call this, what, what do you call this, Spencer? Are they flirting yet? Or is this just the, the, the build up to flirting? We do get to flirting in this episode, though. I don't know if we, they're quite there yet. This is the kind of polite conversation that is flirting if somebody wants it to be. It's, this is the kind of intent of the party style of flirting of where this could just be two people having a polite talk about random topics, or it could be a bit more charged than that. Yeah, and Augustus um, asked if he should be wearing... No, um, Augustus asked if he should be wearing one of those ribbons. Hmm. Um, which, you know, uh, and, and which Penance had a great retort. Should we? Like, should we even be wearing them? Um, very good line. Now, I, I will say that in the last episode, we said, you know, listeners of the Nevermore podcast, we are here for you. We have you. Um, we, got you we got you a spoiler. It's that Augustus is touched. This will be we saw it coming. This will be given to you slowly over a period of episodes. It'll be a big reveal, and when it, when it's revealed, you can look to Spencer and Lee and say thank you guys for for really helping me out and, and telegraphing that. Uh, nah. ah, Twenty five minutes of screen time later, uh, they already let the cat out of the bag. Augustus he, is in fact touched. Yes, and he's so he's so flippant about it too. You know the secret that he's carried for his entire life. You know truly his you know scarlet letter kind of situation just kind of casually drops it in conversation as if they're both completely on the same page, which I guess that little look that they kind of shared in the moment there when they're having Mary's beam connect them, I guess they were on the same page, but I don't know how much we were. I don't know. I think that he, I took his comments to mean that he, after Mary's song, that he just assumed Penance knew, Penance knew. Um, so she did. Yeah, she knew. So he might as well say it. And then I also thought there was a little touch of like, Hey, we got this secret, right? Me and you got mm-hmm. a secret. Me and you together, just the two of us. A secret. Mm. We should talk about it just together, me and you, right? That's what I do. Penance asked him if he knew before the opera, and he said he'd had moments where he'd always been keen on birds. And I'm like, hmm, where is this going? Then he drops this one on us. I dreamt I was a crow. Spencer. Ah! <laughs> dreamt oh I was a crow. Oh my God. And he proceeds to explain that he had dreams of being in a crow and flying. And then it, then after it happened when he was dreaming, one day it happened when he was awake. Now, for the uninitiated, uh, this is exactly what Bran Stark is in Game of Thrones. He's a warg! To, to, to the point that he, you know, he even starts when he's dreaming. And then, yeah. it, then, it beca- then it actually something that he's able to to harness and start to do on command when he's awake. But it be it comes introduced to the character when he's dreaming, and it starts with I know in the in the book it's the or in the show it's the raven, but in the book it's the crow, the three eyed crow, and he starts the line with I dreamt I was a crow. My question for you, Spencer, is obviously we are going to have a field day with this with jokes that Augustus is now the three eyed crow that he has to get north of the wall, and one day he will be the king who could not stand. But my question for you is. Do, were the writers aware of what they're doing? Because HBO loves to give little subtle nods to other shows. Like, they, how could they not have been? I'd almost wonder if it's contractually required now that HBO has a certain character be in the form of a green seer, be in the form of a warg. Because this is so perfectly on the nose. It's almost, it's so perfectly on the nose even where it isn't exactly the same. That it is distinctly Corvid's, it is you know, crows and magpies, but it's not ravens like the show. So the fact it's not even exactly the same, it seems even more that it's making a reference to the to Game of Thrones. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm currently on a Game of Thrones rewatch because um, HBO is pushing the hashtag marathon. All of you folks out there who are not doing a Game of Thrones rewatch right now, I suggest you do it because social media is a buzz with a rewatch. I'm a part of that. I'm out there on social, Spencer. I'm posting every night. I'm having myself a grand old time. But I will tell you that I recently on season four, and I had forgotten this, but the Hound at one point in season four turns to Arya and says, a man's got to have a coat, which is obviously a shout out to The Wire. That was that was number one on my, my HBO cross-reference big board list. It has now been debunked. That is number two. Fully the fact surpassed. that Augustus is the the three eyed crow is now a number one. Well, I think this is. I think they knew what they were doing here. I think that they were looking for something for Augustus to be. Mm-hmm. I think we get a little hint that it's going to play into the plot, you know, with his ability to watch other characters and stuff like that. And I thought like they maybe maybe played it up a little bit in the writing for fun. That's my well, guess. I, I agree, and it, it leads to all kinds of fun questions because you know Bran. Bran or in the books, Arya and, you know, Rob and all the other Stark siblings weren't restricted to, you know, a particular kind of animal or a particular kind of experience kind of thing. They started in a particular way. That's kind of how their abilities first manifested, but they were much broader in terms of application. But we don't know, though, because he isn't literally a green seer. He isn't literally a warg skin changer, however you want to call it, is whether his Augustus' abilities are actually restricted to the Corvid uh, genus. Is this actually limited to, you know, magpies and ravens and crows? Or is just this, his, you know, childhood fascination kind of sent him in that direction, but in reality, it is much broader than that. And he, that's, that's a kind of potential that's just waiting to awaken. At this point, we really don't know. No, we don't. But I guess this explains that it first started when he was dreaming, and then it happened when he was awake one time in church. During the whole explanation, um, Penance... Um, uh, really sort of giggles and flirts her way through it. And I can't tell if she's being like just blatantly insensitive or if she's giving Augustus exactly what he needs in this moment, which is I know in your head this is a really, really big deal. And so what I'm going to do is my reaction is going to soften it for you a little bit to make it easier for you to talk about and maybe make it a just slightly less heavy in your subconscious or, your, or um, in your um, as you're thinking about not your subconscious, but as you're thinking about it internally. In answer to your question, I will say yes. Yeah, it's one, it's, it's one of the two, right? I think it's got elements of both. What she's saying is literally on paper rather insensitive. Like when she laughs in his face at one point before then telling a joke, it's insensitive. But it's intentionally so. It's meant to take a bit of the air about, out, out of what he's saying right there and make it something that's much more manageable and something much more shared between the two of them as this is, your li- this is part of the world, this is part of your life, you don't need to put it on a pedestal. Let's actually talk about it as friends would. And I think that legitimately helps him a lot in terms of coming to terms with it and having someone that he can talk about it with. Yeah. Um, he asked her, if this how it, is this how it works? Which was a very kind of cute question because she then has to explain, well, no people, no two people have the same turn. So, no, it's not really, I mean, it's how it works for you, but not necessarily for everybody else. Um, that's, in, that's interesting, too. Is that, is that just because we don't have enough people, enough is that literally true that each one's abilities are entirely unique or is it just happening to be the case because there's just not that many people that are afflicted yet? Who could say both, either way? But that, that, both of those things touch. could be true, right? Yeah, both those things could be true. I think that if I'm if I'm Amalia, I would think right now the evidence that we have suggests that no two turns are unique, but who knows? I mean, sure. we, I, I also find it a little hard to believe that it's just people in F in London that got this thing, right? Like, yeah, it's yeah. hard for me to believe that, like, in Mumbai, some guy's not, like, levitating a book, you know, after touching it or something. Would um, the government of London care, truly? They're focused at home right now. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, 
But then Augustus uh, has very legitimate concern. Uh, what happens if I get stuck? And she just laughs, makes a joke about like, well, I pity the poor magpie. He'd be stuck listening to that crappy sermon you just referenced. Terrible mm-hmm. joke. Um, but he se- oversells, so it, in the uh, oversells it. Big, big, big guffaw they share there together. Augustus then mumbles, I'm a monster. And then she, she follows up, finally getting into the serious gear that I was hoping that she would get into at some point in this conversation and says, you know you're not, though. Like, you know you're she, not a monster, right? Um, and that is exactly she, what he needs to hear at that point. She does this very artfully, to the point that I'm thinking that she's done this for a lot of people in the past. It's not just that she kind of cares for them, they have a nice little banter. She works through this like a craftsman in terms of helping him come to terms with this, making a joke, making it light between the two of them, before bringing it back to the serious kind of emotional point that she wants to end on. That's either good writing on the part of the writers in terms of how that should be structured, or good or good crafting on her part in terms of how she's gone through this conversation many times before. It's a great point, Spencer. She she we may be meant to think that that's kind of the go-to, right? Like when her or Amalia or maybe even Lucy or some of the the figureheads there at the orphanage um, meet people the first time who come to the orphanage, right? They probably have a similar conversation as this. So she's she's probably got some reps in. Um, she does then, you know, get sneak in a, a selfish question which she says how does it feel to fly and he goes it feels like flying um and, I, and i'm not super crazy about the writing there um no, no uh not great uh but you know whatever i guess it was supposed to be a cute moment um that's anything else on this scene because this is a big scene that's a very joss whedon kind of way of expressing that point there at the end of it how does it feel it feels like flying it's, it's meant to be just kind of this kind of sarcastic playfulness that he's known for but it's the lazy kind yeah, it's pretty, uh, you know, I understand what, I don't think that like, I don't mean to suggest that that was a mistake. I think they wrote it exactly the way they meant to write it. I just am not a fan of that kind of writing. Yeah. Um, cut to Cassini who shows up to a door an older lady opens up and says, oh, you have a, you've had a time of it, haven't you? We'll get you some tea. We oh think God. she's found a safe place. This poor woman who's been struggling this entire episode, she comes in and dum, 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 here comes the, um, the sort of tall I don't know what these people are but they seem to be tall they seem to be cloaked and maybe masked and 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 if they are masked the masks look a little bit like a take on like the scream mask yeah it's I'm I'm thinking they're masked I think they've been referred to as masked figures before but it's a weird kind of mix between scream and leatherface kind of mask it's a creepy look uh, what also makes it creepy too is that it looks like she's been kind of purposely corralled in this direction because there's guys with purple armbands out front that seem to be increasingly kind of kind of scare towards the door. And yeah. when, then when she gets there, she's finding that her what she hoped was a place of refuge is in reality a trap. Yeah, and I'm sure that all of that was triggered from her her snitch friend mm-hmm. um, who told the authorities on her because I, I don't think that these people were after her before her snitch friend did that. So it, not not a good move there. Yeah, put um, the finger on her, yeah. Bad, bad. Cut to, to Mary and Malady. Um, uh, oh. Talking and um, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna cut to you to 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 do some um, malady translate. You here we got a new segment. Spencer translates what the hell malady's trying to say. Um, there's that's gonna be our new segment here on the Never's More podcast. Uh, we'll start with this one. Uh, Mary is explaining how her career in the theater is going. Malady seems put off by it. Um, she then babbles at some point um, after this. To the point that Mary, that Mary has to interject to say, "What are you after?" Now, what? Now, question for you. New segment here on on Never's More. What is Malady saying to Mary in between these two these two segments? 
like you noted, Mary has to like three times try to draw her back to the only thing she knows that they're actually talking about. She has to continually repeat. So about that play thing again, or you know, about the whole God thing, she's seizing on the same threads I am to try to make a half lick of sense about what the hell Malady's talking about. Yeah, I've got we, notes. Yeah, yeah, we're. I'm just gonna say we're in. We got like maybe thirty minutes of screen time left. Malady fills up maybe ten minutes of it, and it is nine and a half minutes too long. It is a lot, a lot of Malady here in the back half of this episode. My, my note on this is more Malady. Could we have less, please? That, that's the main thing I say there. <laughs> Uh, I've got notes on God, demon, song, the woman who sheds her skin, who's coming and wants his song, gears crushing gears, he means it to hurt. It's this kind, it's also to be wrapped around this kind of God delusion thing that this process of pain, this process of being abused is all part of God's plan to some end goal, that this suffering is what is actually intended for us to walk the path ultimately to salvation. It is a popular kind of interpretation of, you know, the pain of the world. It is there. It seems to be one she's seized in to come to terms with what is a life of abuse that's made more recently all the more unpleasant. But good God, does it go in circles and hoops and loops as she goes through this. Yeah, it, um, doesn't, it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. What appears to be, though, and this is interesting, the woman who sheds her skin, if she actually means that as something rather than just this mad drivel that we're getting out of her, it seems to be an element of prediction that Amalia is coming. She refers to Amalia pointedly in that way and later seems to be specifically expecting Amalia. Is that just a reasonable deduction? Is that a certain element of prophecy on her part? Is that some joining between the two, given their shared history? I don't know, but it becomes a, co- it becomes a, you know, a cogent thought that later demonstrates an element of rational thought and anticipation that we see out of her later that we didn't really know to expect. So, yeah. I don't know. My my theory on that is that she knows a little bit more about Amalia than maybe everybody else does. Because remember that line to the Beggar King, this isn't my face? Um, I think she knows a little bit of... She knows some secrets about Amalia and maybe what Amalia is dealing with um, and, and her powers that everybody else doesn't know. That's my guess. It definitely seems the case. It's just a question of whether... Is she again being annoyingly poetic about how she refers to her? Or is there actually something about this whole changing skin, changing face thing? I don't know. I've been currently writing it off as just being annoyingly poetic. But as you've continued to ponder, we don't know the full scope of Amali's abilities yet, much less her history. Yeah, I don't know that I'm. I I wrote out notes as to try to to figure out what Malady was talking about here, but I don't think it's really worth going through. Other than eh, kind of what you out pointed later. out that she she seems to have some connection with God. She seems angry at Mary for having a connection with God herself. That is almost undeniable for Malady. She doesn't like that. And then she does seem to be like doing the, the, um, the bring it on move with Amalia in the conversation. She wants Amalia to come. And then she ends it with, they say you shit when you hang, which, you know, I, again, um, I don't, I think I'm noticing something here is I don't, I'm not quite happy I'm not quite enjoying how they try to end dialogue, the, mm-hmm. how the writers try, because they try to end on something that's kind of like a little light and funny. And like, I, I, I mean, obviously this is foreshadowing to the scene we get later about the hanging, but like, I think it was also Malady trying to be funny. It's just so phenomenally cringy. Like, it's just really yeah. hard to watch. Uh, that cringy kind of summarizes a lot of these scenes that are involving Malady. Uh, I don't particularly enjoy them. I'm not sure whether it's poor writing or not particularly interesting acting, or it may be perfectly on-the-nose acting, but it's just crappy characterization. Um, but either way, I these are 
rapidly becoming for me the nadir of any episodes that they are in. And that holds true here, too. But it, one thing to note there that I did find a little bit interesting is that part of the reason she seems to resent Mary is that Mary embodies a fundamentally different nature of a relationship with God. Is that Mary's kind of what she represents or stands for is kind of implying a certain hopeful and benevolent relationship with God, a kind of caring relationship with God through the nature of her abilities and what that may represent, as which is utterly opposed to what Malady's represents, stands for, and believes about what the nature of being connected to God is. So they're kind of the the two are kind of almost morally opposed on that point. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um... I think we can go ahead. Well, you remember how they said Fred Astaire was like a the triple threat? He could dance, he could sing, he could act. Yes. So this oh, malady, this malady <laughs> thing is a triple threat in the other way for me. I don't like the writing, I don't like the story, and I don't like the acting. Like it's the triple you, threat for me. I, it's, it rounds the basis, Spencer. I'm hitting all the metaphors, but I I don't like any part of the malady thing. Um, and I don't, I, it's very unfortunate because as I started this episode by saying, I did like this episode a lot better. I am starting to enjoy the show. Mm-hmm. I just fear we're, that they're setting up Malady to be such a big part of it. And we already don't like such the, like the fundamental building blocks of that storyline, <laughs> like mm-hmm. that I, it's going to be a little hard to stomach, um, you know, in later episodes, I think. I think it's, I think it's a fair point. And also, also let me compliment you was in no way expecting you to make a Fred Astaire reference to brilliantly prove your point. Kudos, sir. Well done. Thank you. Yes. Uh, the this cultured is man here. For with the people. Cut to Mundy uh, talking to Amalia. I'm I'm starting to like the Mundy Amalia thing. Like, we need, can we get like CSI, like London 1899 with the two of these as a spinoff? I like, I think the two of them solving crimes is just great. I'm enjoying it. Favorite part of the episode. I love the kind of relationship the two of them put together here. I love the banter that they have. I love the teamwork that they put together yeah. here. It, um, it, it is so good. It annoys me that how many different shows within show we get in this that I have to wait to keep coming back to that because that's a touch of something I want to keep coming back to. That's a really that's a really good way of putting it, man. Like, I, I it's starting to be one of those shows where I'm I enjoy thirty minutes of it. The other thirty minutes, I'm waiting for that thirty minutes. You know, it's yeah. just good, and that's that's kind of hard. Um, go ahead. Which, which is a shame, because it's a damn good 30 minutes. The two of them, we get a lot of repeated scenes with them as they're slowly putting together crime, as they're slowly putting together a relationship, as they're slowly even getting to know each other. And it's really well done and fun. The two of them have some excellent... I don't really, When I say chemistry, I don't mean it in the romantic sense. But uh, yeah, I know what you mean, though. Yeah, I, I agree with you. They do have chemistry, but like, don't let's not ship them. This is not a shipping no. situation, Spencer. It's just the two of them seem to get along, and they have a budding, they have a respect for each other that, like pretty quickly that they developed. Look, let me reassure you as a person who is new to the shipping concept, saying that this is not a shipping situation is the worst way possible of trying to defuse the fandom from going there. Uh-oh. I might have I might have ins- I might have accidentally started a shipping situation with the two of them. I don't think that's where this needs to go. They just seem to have respect for each other. Absolutely. Uh, Mundy's trying to get a handle on her ripplings, which you know, to give Mundy a little credit, it is complicated. <laughs> he sort of summarizes it by saying they come and go and she doesn't really know when they're gonna come true or not, and Amalia then hits him with quote, every day is an adventure. Um, Mundy then asks a great question. Can you change the rippling after you've seen them? I think he says something wonderful pretty, question. Pretty pretty good. He's like, well, can you can you see the beach and go to the forest? Like, can you yeah. can you change it after you see it? And she just she says no, but she says no in a very like mm, no. And I would have had follow ups there if I was Monday. <laughs> her her no is so flippant it almost makes me doubt it. 
it, it's so just casual. Nah, that nah, doesn't work that way. It's like, you'd really dismiss that one out of hand. I want to believe you, but yeah, I've got questions three through 19 I want to get back to now. Yeah, I honestly think she doesn't know. I think it was a way of getting out of the, bailing out of the conversation. I don't think she knows if she can change it. Well, it's also, I mean, she, we also have seen before that she's, you know, working under a massive weight of responsibility and guilt that she's barely really being able to manage. Thinking that you can't alter the future may be a necessary part of her coping with her abilities. Because if she can, dear God, the responsibility that falls upon her with respect to that. If she's just merely yeah, seeing sure. something that's ordained, she can remove herself from it. If she can alter that, the entire playing field changes. Well, she be, I mean, she literally starts to become God because she can yes. see this is what, this is what, like, I, I'm, I'm, let me start, like, moving the chess pieces around because I know how the future is going to play out if I don't. Like, that, that's, a, that's another level of power right there. Absolutely. And what this scene now lets us as the audience know, and I like how they've let us come to, uh, you know, come to knowledge about this, is that the little flashes she's been seeing are flash forwards of what is now going to happen next. Of apparently... Yeah punching the ever-loving shit out of Malady in a dank cellar somewhere. Well, I did score the first two rounds, 10-8, 10-8 Malady, so um, I don't think Amalia <laughs> they're, liked that they're very back. much when she listened to the podcast. So uh, they're reviewing a rippling she had when she's punching Malady. Amalia, uh, Amalia says um, when it happens, she mostly feels calm, um, that she's had more experience with violence than she would like, and Mundy posits if that's due to her late husband. Um, mm-hmm. Amalia doesn't seem to want to answer um, and I think Mundy immediately acted very well by Ben Chaplin here because I think Mundy's like, whoa, oh, hold on. I think I hit too close to the truth there. And he bails out of that real quick. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the acting there. Among the acting of the of the various extensive cast we have in the show so far, I think these two are the best. And I think that's part of the reason that the scene, that the scene works so well between them is that the actress, I'm blanking on her name, but the actress who plays Amalia is so delightfully understated. Laura she Donnelly. Can, she can convey a lot of emotion without raising her voice or without seemingly just ex- over-expressing. And Frank Mundy, too, he's an interesting character where a lot, he's got a lot of barriers, but like you said, when, every now and then he really shows a lot of humanity and a lot of nuance to him that I really appreciate. I think that's partly reflected on excellent acting going on there as well. For sure. Amalia is discussing uh, Malady, how she probably was exposed to violence and intense religiosity when she was younger. Mundy says Malady is mocking God and religion. Amalia basically says no, that it, it, in her interpretation, Malady just really like loves God maybe and is trying to please him in her own weird way. Mundy then asks where Mary fits in all this, and Amalia says she doesn't think she really does. Quote, Mary makes you feel love which is terrifying for someone like her, which I think Amalia like has the, 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 the finger on the pulse here of Malady pretty well in this conversation. Um, Malady felt a power greater than pain. Do you think Mary might cure her? Is it ever that simple? How much is Amalia not only talking about Malady here, but talking a little bit potentially about herself? Because that, that seemed like a bing, bringing out of your own kind of demons kind of way of explaining the situation. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there's a there's an implication there that yeah, she could be talking about herself for sure. Yeah, I don't know if she's like overtly doing it, but yeah. Particularly with the framing that they gave us, because she immediately offers this interpretation the moment after Frank Mundy makes a reference to, you know, her ex-husband and the abusive relationship that she had with him kind of thing. And she describes Malady in the kind of confines of being in love with your abuser, the abuser in that situation being God. Yeah, I'm starting to prep our notes for our segments, and one of our uh, one of the questions we got here from a, from a listener uh, corrects me in the pronunciation of penance. It's actually penance. She says it's supposed to no, be penance. No, we, we pronounce it like Southerners. Damn it! 
Okay, so I'm going to try to say, I've already like ingrained myself as penance. I'm going to try to say penance going forward. Uh, I, I think this person's probably right. Like when I read that, I was like, ooh, yeah, probably so. Uh, I'm not sure that I can remember them saying her name on screen. So I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to try to say penance. We'll do. Um, cut to penance and Augustus talking. And um, Spencer, would you like to give us a recap of penance? Uh, Penance's explanation no. of electricity, please. God damn it. It is she she's essentially <laughs> doing a junior level physics class description of potential energy and, you know, entropy. This is what she's doing is saying, you know, I'm type I'm tap she's almost describing the force. She really is almost she, describing the she's force. She's basically describing the force. It's in and around everything. It touches all things. It, this it flows is, through you. I I <laughs> It's just as vague as Yoda talking, <laughs> and I can I can buy that because it's an entirely different setting. It's an entirely different setting. I like it in the four. I like it in Star Wars because it's meant to be ambiguous. It's meant to be mythical and mythological. It is meant to be tapping into some kind of universal fabric kind of thing, rather than this, whose abilities are meant to be you know kind of scientific or at least reasoned or capable of being understood. Hers are so willfully amorphous. I feel like that they exist for the purposes of plot. They're keeping them vague so that she can invent the necessary thing that makes the plot happen episode by episode. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that and thought, yep, uh, Spencer is hating this. Um, so Augustus much. compares it to some bird phenomenon. Is Augustus going to be that guy? Yes. So like when you're at a party and you're like, yeah, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I work in contracts. I mean, basically what I do is, oh, yeah, well, there's a there's a bird that does that. Like, do you think that that's like kind of the guy that he's going to become? Compare everything to bird guy? He yes, and I, I yes. It's a bad look a no- for him, and I'm rooting for him. It's a bad look. Yeah, it's one. It's one of those people I sympathize as, as a socially awkward person in the world. That you often find a central thing that you kind of can kind of like tie things back to to be take part in conversations, just so you feel comfortable. But his thing is birds, and that's a stretch in almost any conversation that you are in <laughs> to really tie them I, back to bird behavior. I do find it funny that like you 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 regularly refer to yourself as someone who's like not good talking to women, not good talking, socially awkward. Yet you're like you're a podcast host. So, you know. What did you do? I guess to it me? doesn't matter I when it's blame just you. you. It's easy when it's just the two of us talking, I guess maybe. <laughs> uh Harriet busted in to uh explain that some of the men, Harriet is the 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 in, um Indian lady. Um mm-hmm. she busted in to explain that some of the men have been wagering on if Lucy can break the statue of Aphrodite in the garden. And um, Lucy is down from when we see her. She's directly disappointed. <laughs> that yeah, and it's absolutely something I'd be doing at that party, by the way. I mean, first off, this concept that I would be at all scared of the touched people, I, I that would be out the window absolutely as soon as they not. came in. And I would be like, wait a second, what can you do? Well, I can just sort of break things when I touch it. It's like I how fast I was doing the math before I start going, Can you break that? Can you break that? Uh, Let's try it, that. <laughs> it's a particularly dangerous thing because it's the perfect kind of crowd build ability is that once somebody reveals that to a group of people, they are going to start working off each other to make the largest thing possible blow up before they're done. It would feed on the crowd quickly. And clearly the statue of Aphrodite is now on the chopping block. In comes Lavinia and we have a very um, tropey scene, which is you have young, socially awkward guy finally finds someone um, that he likes, uh, not in the same social class as him, 
and you mm-hmm. have the authority figure in his life coming in and dropping the hammer and saying, you know, we, we don't get with the likes of them. And, um, you know, and, it, it, and the trope continues through the episode where then he takes that advice and then he lashes out at her and then she gets upset by it. I've probably seen this story in a hundred different television shows or movies. Um, and that's exactly what it is. Lavinia just comes in basically and says, hey, look, uh, everybody's, you know, kind of talking about the two of you in here together. You can't be with her because she's touched, because she's lower lower class than you. because she's Irish, man. Yeah, she, yeah, she's Irish. She does say, you know, I guess, you know, you're not really built to have a mistress. I mean, she, she one thing I like about Lavinia, she's eminently practical. She's like, well, you could, I guess, just have her as a mistress, but you're not really built that way. You're not going to be able to do it. You can't marry her. So why don't you just like get, tell her to buzz off, basically. Which, like you said, it isn't. It is the kind of conversation that would have been very. It's very error appropriate, but because that's a kind of error appropriate thing that would resonate with modern audiences, every single period drama has to have this conversation at least once, maybe twice, maybe make it a key theme of the entire damn series. So, it's gotten tropified to all hell, given our love of period place dramas sit during this particular period and era. Uh, so, I it does annoy me to a certain degree. One of the ways that it's fun to frame it, though, and this really kind of hinges on what your perception of, of, you know, Lavinia is at this point versus where it necessarily ends up in the episode, is how much is she speaking for the benefit of her brother and her family, or how much is she necessarily speaking for the benefit of, how are we agreeing to pronounce her name? Um, Penance. Penance. Thank you. I'll, I'm going to forget that in five minutes. She's not um, at all speaking for the penance, I don't think. Wait, um, in, in that's in my in guess. A, in a different kind of show, or a different kind of show, and a different kind of person saying it, she might have been in the sense that the future you're painting would be purely for your own benefit and offer her no hope of future progression, and probably only offer her an opportunity to being ostracized. But I agree, Lavinia is in no way going at it from that perspective. Her perspective is, "You will protect the family name, damn it! I know you're not emotionally capable of doing that, so I'm browbeating you right now." Yeah, and it's like um, I also it, so if I have a complaint about this episode, it's that. Um, just one? Um, <laughs> yeah, I might have Sorry. a few. <laughs> I'm going to say maybe my number one, other than way too much malady, is um, is that we're getting a lot of storylines that are familiar to me that I can get, I can buy into, that I'm totally down with. And this one, you know, this sort of like Augustus and Penance having this like burgeoning romance and then it being struck down by Lavinia and then, you know, Augustus acting out and then penance like dealing with the fallout of that. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Like I'm give me, give it to me. Like sure. it's fine. My problem is that I don't know if they felt like they needed to, like they were worried that this show was going to get canceled or something. Cause it's, it's happening very, very fast. Like, yeah. Like, you know, for even Lavinia to have the conversation with him to say, Hey, this is like too much and you need to basically cast her off. I would hope that that conversation would come after more than like 10 minutes of discussion, like around a cocktail party. Like it, it just seems to happen very fast. And then him acting out and telling her to fuck off basically happens very, very fast considering the fact that they've had like, you know, two and a half minutes of conversation with each other. And then her crying about it and being super upset seems unearned too. So it's like, it all happened very fast. It's very compressed, but bear in mind, this is the same episode where we have Lavinia revealed as possibly the big bad of the series at the end of it. They are accelerating everything more than they need to. Yeah, for sure. Uh, anyway, anything else on that? No, no, no. I, I, it, it is 
a necessary conversation that I very much agree doesn't feel like it needed to happen here and now, and probably would be more effective if they'd spaced it out for later, given that we yeah. got a whole season to work with. They should have had like two or three more episodes of them two like sneaking off and having a conversation, maybe yeah. like a maybe steal a kiss, you know, in an alleyway or something, and sure. then Lavinia comes in with the hammer. Right now, it seems a little bit an overreaction, and then it also seems like an overreaction from Penance that she gets, she takes it so hard when he basically says, "Hey, I can't talk to you anymore. I gotta go talk to my real friend." But it, it almost feels self-congratulatory on the part of the part of the writers that they're assuming we're already so invested in this that we're going to be you know, like especially crushed that Lavinia is doing it. It's like, you know, they're fun, but they've been ten minutes of fun. Yeah, Give they just like started three. talking to each other like in one party. Like, yeah, it's it's just too fast. But anyway, we end yeah. with, um, you know, Augustus starts to he he gets as soon as Lavinia drops the hammer, he's on the clock for a bender. He just starts hitting the brandy and champagne hard early and often, and he's just beating it. And uh, he then tells her basically, I can't talk to you anymore. I gotta go talk to my quote real friends, which seems to crush penance. Um, uh, Lucy comes in and is like, hey, look, we'll catch a ride. We'll, we'll Uber. You take the Tesla back You need to go home now, yeah. Yeah, and she does, and she um, she speeds off, and she's crying as she leaves, and I just felt like that was a bit of an overreaction. I, I very much agree. Also, fun question. Did we ever really see how Pimrose got there? We saw, you know, uh, Penance carrying two people with her that were kind of hanging off the sides of her one-person car, but Pimrose can't fit, and she was not there. So I mean, it's kind of like... Do you ever seen when they're building roads and they they have those big flatbed trailers with the big pieces of concrete on them um, that are are like strapped in that are going down a highway and it's like oversized load across the back? That's what I'm envisioning, like a big flatbed trailer with with our poor, poor girl Primrose just, you know, fetal position on that thing strapped in big oversized load, uh, 12 horses, 12 Clydesdales. And that's how they get her get her down the road. This, this is the, you know, they've caught uh, King Kong kind of thing, and they've, you know, captured the alligator in Lake Placid kind of thing, and they are hauling them back for exhibition. This is how you think she's being brought to this event? How else? I'm they with you. I don't Cannon. think there's Cannon. any other Cannon way. Now. Um, as, as our girl Penance is peeling out in the Tesla, Augustus goes to the, the corner um, where he could get, you know, in a corner room where he gets a, a window and he can kind of see as she's driving out, and then he, whoop, Works into a, a, some sort of bird and he follows her for a little while. And, and I think that we're starting that. I think that was like the show telling us, okay, now, now penance is obviously going to be mad at him and he's going to feel like he can't talk to her, but they still have this like unrequited love thing. And this is how he's going to watch her. He's going to watch her by right. uh, the bird. And you know, eventually, you know, we're going to get this scene. Spencer penance is going to be doing something. And she's going to look up and see a bird and she's going to go, is it, could it be? And then she's going to start to wonder, is he watching me? Is that, is that him? Is right. that him? And, and they're already they're already giving you a seed of it that we could audibly hear the uh, what whatever kind of corvette it was crow raven whatever else call while she's driving away in yeah. the car that she could hear it she couldn't process it she wasn't thinking about it but as they get more she's going to tie it all together oh my god he's been following he's been following he does me love a, me after all yeah in a non creepy stalker way it's all it's all good yeah absolutely cut to Amalia and Mundy talking he's sharing what he knows about Malady's gang apparently they had a very nice suite for a while this is this is what I would be using my turn for right here ladies and gentlemen um, they had an extremely nice presidential suite for like three weeks because the colonel's turn is he convinced you of anything he says and uh, he kept telling the manager that he was Prince of Wales which you know shout out to the colonel I'd be doing the same exact thing and I'd be I'd be in some baller suite myself 
Well, you want to do shout-outs? Shout-out to Mundy with his legwork he's been doing as part of this investigation. Because previously, they've been kind of writing off, ah, oh, you know, he's been unsuccessful, he hasn't doing much. This man's put together an impressive amount of research and data about where they've been, how long they were there, about who was present, about yeah. what they did. He's put together a very thorough investigation. Kudos. This man's a competent detective. Yeah, for sure. He is. He's, he's more than just the, the drunk who was left at the altar who likes to beat up the suspects, I think. That's what we're, we're, we're getting. Is there, there's more to him than that. It's While she keep... was... What? It's interesting they keep mentioning the drunk beating up the suspects thing because they've told us that like four times. We haven't really seen it yet, even though it's his, you know, apparently either reputation thing. in London. Either thing. We haven't seen him beat up beat up a suspect. We haven't seen him drinking either. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe he's, uh, maybe he's trying to win back Mary. He's on the, he's on the straight and narrow for a while. <laughs> uh, while she was talking, she got another rippling uh, of her punching malady. Then she asks to, uh, it, but I guess when she gets this rippling, she also um, sees maybe... Um, the area that they are like she gets a little bit more to it than that and it's um like the the steam pump distribution uh room center yes yeah <laughs> which, which is green screen pipes all around which apparently is a prior place that they've been based before because it's got an exact picture of it up on monday's big wall yeah uh then she has to use the bathroom she walks out she gives a picture of the steam room uh with green pipes to my new favorite character desiree and tells her to give it to Monday when he comes out looking for it a bit and to, quote, keep his men quiet. So she placing a lot of trust in, she could have just, couldn't she have just told Monday, hey, I'm going to go to this place. Why don't you just show up with your men like 15 minutes later? Yes! <laughs> Dear God, yes! She's placing what? a lot of trust in Monday that he's going to understand her sort of cryptic movements here. This is the, the only reason I don't find this just absolutely inherently, un, just like, teeth clinchingly frustrating is that I feel it is in character from what we've seen of Amalia previously that she would do this that she'd want to go alone that she'd want to go first but the trouble is that Mundy's already bought in with Amalia he no. trusts her he's sharing his investigation with her and he trusts that she has these ripplings he there we have seen nothing in how he's interacted with her to suggest that if she would have said I've had this rippling you need to show up 15 minutes later he wouldn't have done exactly what she told well, him to do it is 100% monstrously stupid that she does this and it damn near gets people killed it is really really dumb and really inappropriate that she does this only way I'm giving it some degree of credence is that it feels a bit in character that the character would do this even as you've noted it's completely illogical that she does so here's the scene I want to see that they did not give us I want to see Mundy walking out and be like, where the fuck she go? Like, and going up to Desiree. And then I want to see how he talks to Desiree. Because remember, he had that scene with her where <laughs> he knows that if he talks to her, he's going to he's gonna say too much. So is it like this sort of like hand over eyes, like approach, like very slowly? <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, did you, you leave a note? Hey, you, like, you tell her that I said, you know, like talk through an intermediary type thing. I want to see how he talks with Desiree now. Paper airplanes. Writes it on notes and throws it at her. That's what I'm expecting now. <laughs> uh, cut to Penance on the way home. She gets stuck behind a horse. Uh, apparently, Penance um, can can uh, devise, create, manufacture an electric car in 1899. Horn a little too much for her, so she's going to have to use the separate trumpet. Um, that's that's a little that's technology a little bit too much for for Penance. Can I strongly recommend that she add a certain feature to her car that is plainly not there? A mud screen. Any kind of windscreen. Her dress is way too pristine for her to be traveling around those streets of London for more than a couple hours without just getting utterly caked with everything that is London. 
soot, debris, shit, horse shit, mud, yeah. all horse kinds shit. of things. She is way too clean for that kind of car to not have any kind of barrier to block that from her. It's a that is. I'm jealous of that point. That's the type of shit I like to point out, Spencer. Um, That is a very good, very good point there. Um, Yeah, she definitely needs a screen. And if she doesn't have a screen, she should at least have goggles because otherwise her face is just going to be lit up. Oh, yeah. Just the the sheer amount of coal soot that's going to be in the air as she's going about. She should be, like, you know, permanently dyed every time she goes out in this car. Yeah, cut to Edmund Haig with Cassini. So this is where Cassini went. Um, she's t- Edmund Haig for if you've forgotten um, from that frenetic first episode is the oh, oh, is the yeah. evil doctor with the big vroom, vroom, with the you know the big drill he's putting pa- in their head. Yeah. Um, she's all tied up. He's about to start working at her, and someone comes in and says the boss is coming, which seems to startle Edmund. Cut to Amalia, who's in some steam room somewhere. Cut to Augustus, who is one on one. jumping fast. Well, that's what the show's doing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's what I mean. We really get nothing more than Amalia is walking down a hallway, and it's clearly a steamer. I'll let you jump quick, but just one little point: uh, Doctor Haig may be another one of my least favorite characters in the show, just because of oh, how just for sure he is on the booby prize list. Absolutely, just making he's got, sure he's got some he's got some competition, but he is up there. I could do without this guy. One thing to note, just about his character, I didn't notice the first episode, that he is distinctly pointedly American, which is unique for the show. That he has a pro- he has a pronounced, clear American accent. So that's interesting enough. But the character is just... Stop I'll give this show this, all right? You're, you're, you're showing London in 1899. You're going to give us an American character... And you made him educated. I, I, thank you. I mean, that is that is absolutely an upset. I mean, you would mm. think that the American at that time uh, interacting with the British would be shown as some sort of backwoods country folk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so at least he's educated. I mean, he is yeah. evil, but he's educated. He's the evil scientist kind of educated, but sure, kudos, where we'll take it. Cut to Augustus, who is, um, uh, he shows up to the Ferryman's Club, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, yeah. it is very. Well, you know what, it's exactly what I envisioned it. You know what Sex Clubs reminded me of? Remember the one from Succession? Yeah, I do remember from that uh, Prague, the episode Prague. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when, when, they, when they when they take uh, I'm blanking the name of the character. We relook those when we watch for the next season. But when they take one of them for a bachelor party, they take him to this kind of weird sex club. It's almost the exact same place they go. It's a cl- like a closed loop system. Oh, God, no, I didn't need that reference again. <laughs> Cut to Amalia. She's in the steam room with dark dark green pipes. She's wearing the goggles, which becomes very important later. She takes a turn and bonfire whoosh, lets her know she's going the wrong way. So she's clearly being steered, and she seems okay with that. Mm-hmm. Cut to the Ferryman's Club, and oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, Spencer. HBO needed to fill up those nudity bars. He is greeted by Hugo. What is What has happened to Hugo? Hugo is wearing... Like a gown, He's wearing like and a gown. makeup. It seems, and he seems drunk. Uh, what? what the hell kind of club owner is this guy? I wanted to ask you about the makeup because it, that guy's caked with makeup, right? Yeah, he's got a lot of makeup on, and he, he like, got, he's wearing like a ladies' nightgown. He, <laughs> he's strange. He got dressed for this occasion, and I don't know what occasion he thinks this is, but apparently it's that. Because and, and he has the gall to call out uh, Augustus for being drunk, which I thought was like you know a little plot pot kettle situation. <laughs> well, to be fair, there's levels of, be, of, be, of being able to handle your booze. This man, they're both drunk, but what it took what it took to get them there is a remarkably different thing. 
Yeah, Hugo's been drinking. I mean, he we already see that he wakes up with wine in the morning, and and Augustus has been pounding. I think they said brandy. I think is what he what he smelled of. He'd been pounding brandy. He he, um, he, had, like, he had like two. While on the other hand, uh, uh, you know, um, Hugo's Hugo. been, uh, he's been essentially drinking since the age of eighteen, roughly nonstop. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, he he is in. He does at least seem while he looks strange and he looks very different than we have seen him before he does at least seem to be in his element he seems to be having a lot of fun they look at a performer and augustus immediately immediately realizes she's touched this confuses augustus and the and the audience by the way it confuses all of us too uh because the last episode hugo didn't even seem to know who the touched were uh he seemed like i think i said he was like the guy writing the book report when he didn't read the book sort of deal like well you know i don't know like they're different they're uh you know uh, like that sort of deal now all of a sudden he knows enough about him he's got him employed in the Fairyman's Club. And he's implying that this is new, too. That this is, that he like did a complete 180 and saw an investment potential after the massacre happened, which. Amazing, this guy. So, th- th- let me, here's what, here's what I'm supposed to understand about Hugo. He goes to the, he goes to the opera. He's in the back hooking up. All hell breaks loose. People start dying. The, the big Jack the Ripper serial killer runs right by him. Mm-hmm. And his mind goes to, I could hire some of these for my sex club. <laughs> Hey, the man just read Dracula, the mixing the horror and the sexuality in an inherent theme. He got ideas. Unbelievable. But anyway, uh, he does explain that, you know, that the, the opera opened his eyes. He saw an investment opportunity. He explains that he needs a little small investment from Augustus. How much is it? Whoop, zero dollars. But he explains that he needs Augustus's name at Bidlow on the contracts. Lends legitimacy. And you can imagine what Lavinia might think of this. Well, you know, in terms of his asks, money would have been a much smaller ask than this. Being a behind-the-scenes backer. Oh, yeah, backer. for sure. And he knows that, though, right? Because he's been prepping yes. Augustus for this. We got the little conversation with the with the lady who, oh, you don't have to put the maid's outfit on. Oh, oh you are the maid. That 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 scene, if you remember. Yes. Um, but, yeah, we, they were prepping us for this. And he, he's been grooming Augustus for, I need a partner, but not for money. I got money. I need somebody to give this, this sex club legitimacy. And it seems Augustus is kind of into it. it At seems least for like now, he, yeah. Uh, you know, he... To just make sure that he's, you know, fully enraptured with the idea, we have Hugo, you know, use his two best saleswomen to, you know, further bring him home to the point. But I did not expect Augustus to go in the back with these ladies, but he did. Uh, it was a little surprising for me. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't really know how I feel about that, but it happens. Um, oh, it happens, huh? Uh, and um, so <laughs> we uh, <laughs> use the present tense, Spencer. Uh, so Hugo does give a line though that I really enjoyed here potential line of the episode we're the second sons you and I worse my brother is dead and yours is a woman <laughs> pretty good it's a good line I like that one a bit yeah, yeah. Um, cut to the steam room Amalia walks in and sees Malady who had put up a literal welcome sign which was kind of on the nose because Amalia had literally said like two minutes earlier why don't you just tell why don't you just put up signs to tell me where to go instead of doing this fire trick so that was and rather, says, you know, oh, you did put up a sign. And this is the type of writing that I remember from Buffy. Those little like almost like um, anti-joke, like kind of close thing. to fourth wall breaking. Oh, yeah. you did do that. Oh, you, like little throwaway stuff like that. That 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 tend to memory. Uh, tend to memory for me. it, it, It'll be it, interesting to see if we get that writing after Whedon's gone, if, if that'll continue. It's, it's a very Whedon style of writing of kind of self-aware humor. I have always had kind of mixed feelings about it. And this one feels particularly just kind of lazy. But whatever. Sure. We're moving on. <laughs> She asks where Mary is, and Malady says she first needs to shed. You need to shed 
Melody attacks by throwing one of those flashback thingies, but guess what? Malia has her glasses to help out. She counters and starts to beat the living crap out of Malady. First two rounds, 10-8, 10-8. I'm giving this one 10-9, um, uh, Amalia. Amalia does win third round. Um, I, I want to get your I want to get your view as a master of just you know the amount of punishment a human being can take from your years of experience here. Sure. We have a suggestion going later that Malady's a little bit superhuman in terms of the ability amount of harm that she can suffer while still functioning. But if she wasn't that. Given what Amalia does to her and with the objects she does it with, would a normal human still have a functioning jaw by the time by the time Amalia is done? So maybe not. I had this thought. Maybe not. But I would venture a guess that while this is a magical world, right, and people do have superpowers, there's the alien space came came down, dropped fairy dust, and everybody has superpowers. I still think that Malady has mental illness. I still think she's probably schizophrenic, and um, schizophrenic people. Like, not, like, on the whole, I'm not saying every single one. I'm saying that they, that they because they're operating sometimes in uh, non real like, they're, they're mixing reality and hearing things and seeing things that aren't there, sometimes will we'll tend to have a little bit of a higher pain tolerance. Um, and so uh, my thought was this might be someone who her mental illness um, predisposes her to being able to, to take a punch because, um, you know, she's her mind is just elsewhere kind of deal. I think that's a reasonable enough interpretation that is in some way limited by what we will see later involving a certain gunshot to the chest. But we'll get there in a minute. No, yeah, that, well, that's different. But I'm talking about during the, during the fight yes, scenes yes, here. But anyway, Amalia clearly wins this round, which she oh, was yeah. just itching for another round, by the way. She could not wait to get her back between the ropes. Um, we hear, um, so then they start talking. <laughs> and uh, Amalia drops this one potential line of the episode all your pain all your rage at some point it's what you are and pain despises hope I know but Mary's song isn't just hope we can gather people like us and make sure your angels can't hurt anyone else mm-hmm. during the back and forth Malady asks if Mary is Amalia's new best friend Amalia I don't know how to do this this riddle me shit it's beneath you um, that, that uh, point, was of order, mm-hmm. point of order point of order uh, gonna have to respectfully disagree with you, Molly. I don't think it's beneath her. I don't think much is beneath the the writing formality. I don't think uh, nothing's below this. Yeah, this is another you know, bout of self-aware humor, I feel. Uh, and it's one I can just appreciate more because, man, Amalia, I'm right there with you. This is what needs to be said in this moment of, what the hell are you saying? You just made a Nietzsche quote. I got that much. But then the rest, just just start punching me again, please. Yeah, at this point, Malady motions up, and <gasps> we see that Mary is on a ledge up above with a noose tied around her neck. Malady again says that Amalia is the person who needs to shed her skin. Amalia says, you mean dress? And Malady says, your friend. So I am just all over the place confused here because I thought where we were going with this was malady had some knowledge about amalia and the fact that malady amalia like literally is either like changing skin or changing bodies or something um that would tie in with what she said to the the beggar king yep well now she says you need to shed your skin and amalia seems completely confused by what she's talking about says do you mean dress because she lost you know famously lost her dress in the last episode and now she says, you're friends. And then it seems to be, well, no, this whole time what she was talking about is the fact that I guess they were friends when they were kids and they lost touch. And uh, Malady has been following her Facebook, you know, watching watching her updates, you know, been getting very passive aggressive and, um, you know, is now very upset with her. 
this is this is the Facebook st- fe- Facebook feed stalking friend. It's just unhappy. Yeah, absolutely. With they they lost touch. They used to be best friends when they're like you know like maybe in like sixth grade they said they'll be friends forever. Malady mm-hmm. took it to heart, and now Malady's been just following her on social all this time, and Did- she's just really disappointed in the way that Amalia has approached the relationship. Does she still have the left half of the best friends forever necklace that she still keeps with her at all times kind of thing? Probably. And, but they did seem to go by different names back then. I mean, obviously, I would guess this lady didn't go by Malady when she was like in elementary school. But what were the names they said? Um, Molly and Sarah. Molly and Sarah. Yeah. And so Molly is Malady. And Sarah is a Molly. No, no. it's I got that backwards, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, Molly. Malady refers to Amalia as Molly. Yeah, makes sense. And then, and then Mally her real is name Sarah. is Sarah. Okay. So I, that's my interpretation. And this confirms in my mind that all of these references to changing faces have just been poetic bullshit. That she's, you know, effectively just kind of, you know, wearing a different mask than she did when she was younger to escape from her prior life or whatever else. And like you said, it really does come across as like the old jilted friend that's disappointed to have been left behind. There's an implication kind of here that that there's some element of a betrayal that something to do with the, maybe the insane asylum that, you know, they may have both been going, but one got away and the other one went maybe, maybe. but it's so hard to tell through all the bullshit that malady says. Well, and if, if that's the case though, we saw malady getting hauled to the insane asylum three years ago, right when all this, all the alien spaceship was going down. And at that same moment, we saw Amalia jumping in the river. So it may very much be that, you know, one got away from what was happening but the reason she didn't really go back or check in was that she was going to commit suicide. And so she has a very valid you know, reason and explanation why she was kind of leaving that part of her life behind. But as you said, we don't get much in the way of details and what we know doesn't necessarily seem to fit or at least paints a really kind of weird schedule. So I'm sure we'll find out more. They're telegraphing this as if it's going to be a central tension to the plot. And I don't think I'm going to like that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Amalia then starts to stammer, I didn't, oh God, I didn't know what happened to you. Malady has some sort of weird monologue about being ground up into bits and Amalia mm-hmm. dining on gravy and grounded up bit. I don't know. Moral of it seems to be that Amalia and Malady used to be best friends. But uh, Amalia moved on at some point. Malady concludes with, if she's your new best friend, what about that one? And it, oh, I mean, this scene here. You know, you Ray, you 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 connected the dots before we got here, Spencer. But this really rings of, you know, I am gonna terrorize Gotham, and I've got this my Joker. Is... Fa- this is so Joker, and and it it you know like even with the sp- like oh here's the big reveal spotlight I got your girl up in a you know in a yeah. and then this... even giving the the choice to the to the protagonist here who do you want to kill it's so Joker, dude. This is this is even like Jack Nicholson Joker. This isn't even Heath Ledger kind of Joker. It's definitely got elements in terms of the grunge factor, but it is such annoying kind of showmanship. It yeah, it, this is so on the nose Joker that I find I find it kind of frustrating and can't really take it seriously. So practical point here. Question is, Malady explains this. So they're both on ledges, maybe two two stories up in this big big, big steam room, and they both have a noose around their neck, and it looks like the rope is connected to each other by a pulley in the center. Now, yes. Malady says, shoot one, save the other, shoot me, yeah, they both die. If you shoot one, how does it save the other? I'm a little no. confused on the, how the shooting one saves the other. The only way that works is if, you know, you grab the other person and prevent them from falling, which good luck with that because the other body's gonna fall and that's gonna be the full weight of a body falling. You have to suddenly try to pull the person. I thought pulled out killing one would kill the, I, I didn't understand, like, uh, like, yeah, 
Great visual here, Melody. I'm going to give you nine out of ten on the criminal, <laughs> criminally insane scale here. Well done. Um, yeah, well done. Kudos to you. You clearly worked this all out. But I'm you. You didn't. You did. You you did not stick the landing with the here's a gun. Now shoot one to save the other. Never made any sense to me. It clearly didn't make any sense to Molly either. Because what does she do? Shoots herself. Yeah, she she finds a very much third option kind of thing. Um, yeah, I. I the only way that works is if, A, you either somehow shoot the rope, which, okay, uh, good luck with that, with that kind of pistol during that period, and they seemingly would just push the other person off anyway. Or yeah, B, they just the push lack- the person over the ledge, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, 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 or you are expecting the lackeys to try to prevent the other person from falling when suddenly the weight of the other body is pulling at the end of their rope, which, again, good luck with that. So I, I don't get it. I, it's perfectly possible Malady didn't necessarily think it through either. It didn't make a lot of sense. Um, it was it was a striking image, though. We did get yes, the sort of was. striking image. And then we did get the sort of like, okay, well, now we know. Malady is in that sort of like criminally, like sort of insane, but in a very showy way. Like you, you don't know. Like you might see like, you know, the next like victim that they they kidnap, like, you know, on hanging by Big Ben or something. Right. Like yes. it's like she's in that realm of criminal now. And how, how many goons does she have in this room? It seems there's like a lot. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people that are apparently under the employ of whatever operation she she is with. Well, she's look, promising. She's she's writing a lot of false checks here. She's promising okay. they'll get they'll get tar, they'll get turned if they just follow her a little longer. Do, do they get workers comp for this kind of job as a hired goon lackey? I'm always uncertain how that works. Yeah, un, unclear what the reporting structure is, but I do hope I'm reporting to Bonfire. <laughs> She seems to be the only no, one with any sense no. in the group. Bon- Bonfire is not in management. She is clearly a hired contractor. She gets her 1099, and that's how it works. Gosh, she's the only one that seems remotely reasonable. But anyway, so presented this choice, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but the, but the choice as, as illustrated or as presented to Amalia is you need to kill one. You need to choose your best friend. The other one will be saved. Um, or if you shoot me, then I'll just they'll just kill both of them. Uh, Amalia points the gun to her stomach, shoots herself. Um, this malady freaks out and says something along the lines of, if you, you know, if you die, I can't terrorize you. Basically, I can't, I can't hurt you if you die. You need to, you need to not die. She freaks out. Um, uh, Amalia shoots malady, and I don't know if it's a cap gun. I don't know if it's a bulletproof vest. I don't know what it is, but the the shot seems to do absolutely nothing to malady except knock her back a little bit. This tells me that Amal- that Malady's possible turn is just kind of superhuman endurance or durability because she gets a shot like right through her sternum, right right through her lung, right right here on the right on the right side of her body. It's a this is the kind of wound that you die from in that era, and she doesn't even flinch. It knocks her back a little bit, and she acts like it's not even a bee sting. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, and then um, you know you you know how like normally you get. Like, hey, look, we gotta go uh, from the from from your from your second in command. Uh, bonfire doesn't do that. She, she just pieces whoosh. out. She just, no, she just whoosh. she just gives you a big big waff of fire, and that's yeah. that's that's the inclination. All right, we gotta get out of here because Monday is showing up because he he was able to speak um, with the with the poor <laughs> the poor lady <laughs> with and Desiree. If, uh, if only. He got he got the he got the clues. It all worked out. He came with his men, and they rushed the place. If only he'd gotten there ten minutes earlier, they probably could have caught the big bad. But oh well, the hero got to have her emotional confrontation moment. 
Yeah, very strange. Uh, then we cut to Horatio. Oh, uh, and then um, as soon as they take the sock off of Penance's mouth, she screams like, oh, get the doctor. Yeah. Pretty important doctor to get, right? Because you got Horatio who's in effect like a, just a healer. Um, and he has used it to fix Amalia. Amalia wakes up. Uh, Penance is yelling at her about almost dying. Uh, you could have died, you crazy person. You know, Amalia mentioned she missed the vital organs. Both Penance and Horatio explained to her that she did not. Um, pretty funny scene there. <laughs> funny she says, line. well, funny it, it was a bad gun. The gun was the gun was crap. That's why. Mm-hmm. Um, Horatio tells her to get some rest now. Days of rest. I'm sure that she will challenge that in the start of episode three. Penance lays down to Amalia and says, there's something about malady. Um... Uh, Penance then says, no, there's loads I'll need to explain, but let's just be alive for a while. And it ends with that. That scene ends with the two of them uh, holding hands, laying in bed. Not not in any sort of sexual way or anything. It's just clear that Penance thought she was about to lose her friend. I'm sorry, man. You're trying to keep on making this platonic, but the fan base is just going nuts with the shipping when it comes to those two. I agree. The show's trying to frame them as just being close friends and platonic, but it's not stopping the fans. This um, is a shipping situation that the fans are shipping. Oh, the fans are shipping when it comes to those two. Um, but one one thing that with the question I'm curious about your thoughts on I wasn't expecting the, the name of the doctor Horace is that his name or Horatio? Horatio 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 Cousins great name great name great name indeed uh, I was not expecting his healing abilities to be as apparently uh, as powerful as they ultimately proved to be is that Amalia shot herself in the gut you know she's bleeding I think she probably hit a liver or something yeah because they said she hit a major organ. That you, is wouldn't, a, you wouldn't say that about a kidney, right? Because you just take that thing out. Yeah, easy peasy. It looked like to me she was firing through her intestines kind of thing. It wasn't yeah, pretty. Maybe. This is the kind of thing you die from in that day and age, and you die from painfully. The fact that his abilities are able to fix that, to restore that, and prevent an infection in the process, this man has the healing hands of God kind of thing going on. I'm going to disappoint you about Horatio. Are you ready for it? Tell me. We're never going to get a scope to his healing abilities. He's going to be able to heal anybody at any point without explanation, and they likely won't even—they likely won't even show it on screen like this time. It'll likely be an off-screen type of situation. Are you picking up how frustrating I find that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're going to hate it because <laughs> they're going to do this, and it probably is going to be like at the end of the episode, like the heroes are going to go out, boom, big bad, you know, uh, events. They they going out, they're they're having big fights, and then uh, he c- kind of cleans up the mess at the end, and he has a sassy line and says, "Now you you stay in bed, you you know you really need to stay in bed." And then the next episode, well, they're out in the streets again, and, what? and what happens? Ratio has to heal him at the end of the episode. Because that's it's also imminently frustrating because it probably implies he's nothing to be more than a supporting character when as you noted he's one of the more quietly interesting characters we have yet on the show yeah oh for sure i mean i i I like the actor i think he's funny Mm -hmm. um and um i think he's like he he's funny in a way like he he physically acts the lines in a way that makes me laugh i i'm buying the chemistry with him and amalia i am very much so um but i'm just going to go ahead and tell you it's going to disappoint you and a lot of people out there I already know how this show is going. Oh, We're no. getting no scope. No scope for this guy. Unlimited healing power. It just happens. That's it. We're not going to have to question it. <laughs> not going to have to, but man, am We're I going to constantly. Yeah. Not going to be meant to, yeah. yeah. Cut to uh, um, USA USA. Uh, Edmund Haig who's uh, asking somebody uh, if his how his boss sounded. And the guy's, the guy, the guy, speaking for all of us, by the way, I don't know, dude. It was a telephone. Like, I don't know. Sometimes when people get loud, get mad, they get loud. Sometimes they get quiet. Like, what am I supposed to? Like, it was such a, like, 
great answer that yeah. like cut through the, a lot of the bullshit of the show. I was like, wow, that was like a that's like an actual really astute moment. Like, look, I can't tell if somebody's mad over the phone. Like, how I can't you, how see their face. Phone? This wasn't a this wasn't a video call. It's eighteen ninety nine. I'm also, watching it. I'm like pausing my Apple TV. Like, yeah, the rare cogent point. How about yeah. that? Yeah, that's oh, very good. Also, can you imagine answering that question in eighteen ninety nine? Can you imagine what that connection sounded like? Like we complained about Apple, you know, the connection between two phones as being kind of shit. But can you imagine how barely Terrible. coherent that would have been? Terrible. Tin can and string. That's what it is. He's clearly nervous about the boss coming in. Haig explains they have a little miracle, and in comes. It's so Darth Vader. <laughs> Darth Lavinia, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. We have the big reveal. It comes in episode two. I'm a little confused about that, but we have the big reveal. Lavinia is behind Dr. Edmund Haig. Lavinia is not quite what we thought she was. She is not just the uh, the, the fairy godmother of the orphanage. She, uh, she's got some ulterior motives, uh, and some of those don't appear very good. I love your comparisons to Darth Vader, too, because the filmmaking in this scene is straight up when Darth Vader is first revealed, kind of raising him up on the platform thing. There is smoke in there. There is the lighting that's behind her. She's coming down on an elevator kind of thing. It is so aggressively Darth Vader. That's an interesting filmmaking call. Yeah, it's it's Darth Lavinia. um, And uh, he explains that a few days ago, dark is the day they found it, but now ain't we got fun. Um, Lavinia says, you are an American, uh, confounded by the mother tongue. This is not fun. It's war. And we see people working. Um, and they're going about their task rather mindlessly. Ha ha. See what I did there? And, uh, we see Cassini with a big scar on top of her head. And what we are seeing, a little hard to describe. It looks like we might be underground and I'm guessing, positing, this is maybe part of the wreck, um, of the alien spaceship. And it is now... Uh, it's 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 flashing. I don't know. It's making a color of some kind. Uh, some energy is in it now. And he was saying it was dark just a few days ago. <laughs> Try to piece this together. I mean, my initial sort of like from Jump Street theory is that he's doing something with the afflicted. Um, that is, yeah, I don't know if he's like taking part of their brain or something and putting it on the spaceship, or he's doing something through that medical procedure that is somehow generating energy off of the alien spaceship. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, I did say that sentence just then. So I mean, as absurd as that sounds, I did actually say that, and I meant it. <laughs> In all of the shows we have watched, did you ever imagine that that sentence would be used as a description for a scene recap? He's doing something with their superhuman powers through brain surgery that is inner that is providing energy to the crashed alien spaceship. Whew, boy, ladies and gentlemen, we are in the weeds. I mean, my interpretation of this scene, is, I mean, we don't have much to work with. I agree with you. This seems to be some kind of like core of the alien ship that we saw fly over. It looks kind of similar. It seems like it's still very active and kind of pulsing kind of thing. There, It may, you know, be factoring into the idea that they actually have some hopes that using this kind of core, they can actually intentionally give people powers, give people turns, make them the touched. And maybe that's kind of their hope by which they're doing this. And that could factor into why Lavinia is running the damn orphanage so that she can learn more about them and their abilities so that she can actually weaponize or commercialize this kind of thing. Or so she has a pipeline to the afflicted to bring to him. Very possible because it appears to be, well... Notably, we see Miss Cassini among the among the workers yes. that are there. 
with a monstrous surgical scar along the back quarter of her brain. I mean, it's, they're drawing the parallels to the lobotomized, like they've yeah. done something to her brain because she's now she's walking around mindlessly, just like moving rocks. Well, it's interesting too because lobotomy is the prefrontal cortex. It's it's severing the connections that are happening in the in the very much the front, the very much the front of your brain between the, the um in, in the frontal lobe between the prefrontal cortex and the anterior region. So it's very much in the front. This way back here doesn't really have much to do with that, but it makes for one hell of like a Planet of the Apes surgical scar kind of reveal moment. And is this being done, like you said, to kind of purposely harvest part of their brains? It's used being to reduce them to mindless working drones that don't complain? If so, why are you using the afflicted for that purpose? Yeah, well, you could just, just, I mean, this is 1899 London. Use poor people. Yeah, use hire the damn Chinese. You got you got options here, people. There's a yeah, lot of there's, there's yeah. a lot there's a lot of immigrant populations that people won't miss if you just want to use them and discard them afterwards. But, yeah, absolutely. But but we uh we are now done with the recap. We are end of episode two. Um, we, go ahead. We we skipped one scene. I want to talk about briefly because they had a fun moment in it. What is it? Uh, fr- uh, Frank and Mary talking. Oh yeah, I didn't care about that scene. Go ahead. Oh, you, okay. you tell me. <laughs> Okay, Frank and Mary basically talk about where they're uh, basically having a talk where Mary's now been rescued. She's going to stay at the. She's going to stay at the at the. Like, they refer to it as an orphanage. It isn't. They're all damn adults, but whatever. It's an orphanage. Uh, she's going to stay the there. B and B. The the X Men. Professor X's bed and breakfast. I like that. That is wonderful. You know, I think they would really get better recruiting if they advertised it as breakfast included. They left that off the pamphlet, and that was a major oversight. Always, she's gonna, always very nice. Always convenient in the morning to have the breakfast. Isn't it ready nice? For you. Yes, it's just lovely. Uh, she's going to stay there because she doesn't really feel particularly safe anywhere. So why not stay with the people that seem to understand better what's going on than anybody else? Their conversation is kind of doing in rounds about what their relationship is, or Frank clearly wants to ask her about what happened even starts to, but she kind of puts him off that now isn't the right time for it. And he kind of, you know, chastened agrees that, you know, can I call on you later? Can we talk about this more thereafter else? But it's kind of a certain element of, they clearly still care for each other, but they're still trying to come to peace with, why things happened the way they did and why they probably won't ever be back together. And they're both clearly friendly. They both clearly still care for each other, but it's not really clear what the next step of that is going to be. But one line I just kind of liked from Frank, because it's that kind of weird line that has a lot of emotion behind it. When he's leaving, he turns to her and says, I'm sorry for your terrible day. And it's a, it's a tiny little line. It's a very kind of almost juvenile kind of statement. But it's that kind of juvenile statement that almost can have more power behind it than something more complex could in terms of expressing that thought. Before it's just a legitimate statement of empathy that he clearly means, and it clearly is something that really means a lot to her that he said. Here's why I didn't like it, why I would just skip right over it. Mary then responded with, you know, I always thought I'd be the one saying that to you. And you know what, Mary? You know what? You're getting the benefit of the doubt from everybody because you got this magic song. But how about you still can say that to him? You know what? what? You still can say sorry, Mary, what? by the what? way. That's I know that the, he was batting way out of his league here, uh, and even even getting a date with you. But you can still say sorry for leaving you at the altar. I'm completely on the same page with you there. I, I I fundamentally agree with Mary that right now is not the time for that conversation. She just went through all kinds of hell. Let her come to terms with that first. But he absolutely 100% deserves an explanation. They can't avoid that conversation. She owes him that. She doesn't have to be with him. Absolutely gets to make her own choice, no calls in life. Had all rights to not go through with a wedding, whatever else. But as a person that you cared about, purportedly cared about, purportedly loved, you need to have that talk with them. It's only fair to them, and Frank deserves it. You ready for some life advice with Uncle Lee for all the kiddos out there? Damn straight. I missed this segment. Okay. All right, kids. Um, 
if, when you're going through life, you're going to have relationships and you might get in a situation where you're going to get married to somebody you decide not to and you leave them at the altar. This may happen to you. Um, <laughs> in movies, at least. Yeah, sure. It may happen. Regardless of your, your reasoning, you may have very good reasons out there for leaving somebody at the altar and not getting married. You have to give them an explanation. I mean, this is, this is one of my universal rules. If you leave someone at the altar, Spencer, it doesn't matter what your reason is. You have got to give them that reason. You can't just like haul off and never talk to them again. Unacceptable. Yeah. Only, only Julia Roberts. Karma's gets, gonna get you again. Karma's gonna get you. Only Julia Roberts in movies gets away with that shit. That's not something that happens in the real world. You've got to have that conversation. And in this situation, Mary's only getting away with it because she's just like astonishingly gorgeous. If if we had learned, <laughs> she if falls the out audience, of near death experience. Come on, whatever. If we had learned, if the audience had learned that Mundy had left her at the altar, do you oh, understand God. how fast all of the Nevers fans out there would be on Mundy's ass? Nobody gives a crap that she did it. It'd be the easiest way to frame him as a permanent villain in the minds of the fandom if he'd done that. Yes, it is a bit of a double standard going into play here. But it also yeah. could be a certain... I think in some ways we're almost more critical of this scene because with every other time they've done this, they've done that conversation happening in the same overly, you know, chalked full episode. So the fact they're delaying this one out just frustrates us all the more given that they haven't done that with anything else. Yeah. So, yeah. Kiddos, Uncle Lee's here for you. If you have to leave somebody at the altar, if you have to, <laughs> you got give reasons. them an explanation after. And by the way, if you think I was wrong about anything I just said there, you know, I'm just, I'm just fucking around. Just, um, just, <laughs> it's almost like factoring Sorry. into your Winston. Your, it's, it's almost like factoring into your Winston Churchill that if you have to kill somebody, it costs you nothing to be polite. If you have to leave somebody at the altar, it costs you nothing to explain why later. Just let them know. Just give them, yeah. give them a phone call. You know, Leave this a is card. a phone call. And I know kids kids nowadays, you don't like the phone call. I understand. This deserves the phone call. I'm going to help. It's another thing from Uncle This Lee. isn't a text if moment. you leave somebody at the altar, <laughs> this is not a DM situation. You have got to give them a phone call. No, no, come on, dude. I think this merits like an Instagram message. I think that's really all you really get out of this. <laughs> that's what a DM is. I know. I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> I thought you were I thought you were confused about Instagram. No, I know you're I, not on Instagram, so I was just I was wondering you, if you, you were really... You, you, you were you were mocking the concept, and I was saying, no, this is very much that level kind of thing. Okay, I didn't I didn't know how how familiar you were. There I'm with with, you. The, with the knowledge uh, on Instagram. Uh, for, for anybody out there who's trying to find Spencer on Instagram, you can quit looking. You ain't gonna find him. <laughs> Good advice. Yes. <laughs> Have an account. Right. You'll never find it. <laughs> you're never you're never gonna find Spencer on Instagram. All right. So here we go. We are done with the recap. We are going into our segments. Our first segment is. Best line of the episode. I and I alone remember a best line of the episode. Spencer will supply me with some nominations. I will designate the best line of the episode. Then we will go to our favorite character arcs. And then we will award the booby prize for the least favorite character arc. Um, Spencer, do you want to jump into best line of the episode? I do. And I felt like this was a more quotable episode than the last one was. So I do have a it few was. potential entries. Okay, fire uh, away. First one. Uh, this is the conversation they're having when Frank Mundy and gang are kind of raiding the orphanage or raiding the bed and breakfast. Sorry, I got to keep it right. Right, marketing. Uh, of when um, Julia, I think it's Julia says to her, um, Frank Mundy, you're the one that likes knocking around, su knocking suspects about, even though they's as innocent as Christmas. What do they do to set you off? They call me Frankie. I like that line. That's a good way of shutting up that conversation. For sure. Pretty good. Pretty good. Go ahead. You want me to keep, just keep going, or are you want to do? Yeah, you do yours, this? and then I'll I'll see how many you hit. Uh, okay. And add any any that I I have. Uh, a line between Amalia and you know Frankie. Uh, it got caught on something like Cinderella's shoe. Please tell me you haven't been trying it on on every girl in the kingdom to see who it fits. 
enjoyed that kind of little playful banter. Pretty good. Uh, line from Lavinia. Uh, it's a pointed... This is something that uh, Penance needs to understand when it comes to Primrose. When a kitten reaches 10 feet, they call it a tiger. Good point. This is... we can't. Though she is very much still a prim, a prim little girl, she's a little girl writ large. <laughs> writ large. Man, you're on fire. Uh, let's see here what else I got. Um, one, one from Lavinia. It's society doing nothing is how we panic. Great line. Yeah, very good. Uh, I'm off to drink lunch. Was hilarious, and I had to pause to laugh that one through. That was strong, and like you don't you if you weren't watching it with the the subtitles, you might not have heard that one. That's a really good line. They should have had that when they were doing like posts on that. They should have made that a little louder. Another one from Lavinia. Lavinia had a few good lines this episode. Uh, Gilbert Madison and I agree on almost nothing. It's the bedrock of our friendship. I have friendships like that, and they're some of my closest friends, so I'm completely there with you on that summary of that kind of relationship. Uh, Strom Thurmond and Ted Kennedy? As you summarized, that was a perfect way of describing that. Um, This one, as you said, it was a dumb joke, but it was a a purposefully dumb joke. Well, if you're up there, pity the poor magpie that has to to listen to that sermon. It was a funny line from Penance. I liked that quite a bit. Uh, uh, got, work with me. You don't have to agree. You just have to hear them. A <laughs> uh, couple more. I got one. Um, Go ahead. This from Amalia. I do have a mission. I didn't ask for it. I'm not cut out for it, but it matters and it requires sacrifice. That, that was fun because she didn't even mean to say that too. It was flowing out of her due to Desiree. Uh, I missed the vital words. Wait a that? No, that's not that. No, that was. Um, she said this. She said this right before she shot herself. To, oh, uh, you're to right. Melody. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Uh, funny line you already mentioned. I missed the vital organs, you idiot. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Oh, I thought either you don't know how anatomy or you don't know how to aim. Well, it's, it's a bad gun. It's a funny line. That was a good exchange. Very strong. And I, again, I liked the line of, I'm sorry if you're a terrible day. That's the kind of line that a lot of people actually just want to hear said with empathy, and he says it that way, and it clearly is meaningful. Got any others, sir? Uh, Mary, you know I always thought I'd be the one saying that to you um, in response to the, I'm sorry about your terrible day. Um, this is not fun. It's a war. I, I actually did not particularly like that line. That was, uh, that, that was the purposely kind of, let's think of something dramatic to end an episode on kind of thing. Um, so here's going to be line of the episode. You ready for it? I'm ready. Line of the episode, the Nevers episode two is all your pain, all your rage. At some point, it's what you are. And pain despises hope. I know. But Mary's song isn't just hope. We can gather people like us and make sure your angels can't hurt anyone else. Now, look, is it the best line we've ever heard in popular media? Of course not. But I'm still, it, we're still in the introductory phase of this show. I'm still trying to figure out what, what it's gonna be. lines are going to be important. Because if you've been with us on the GOT Got Questions podcast or Mangum Talks TV podcast, and you know this segment, you know Spencer's supplying me with lines. A lot of times we like to nominate fun ones, ones that we find funny, or ones that we find interesting. But what I usually select is something that gives us an indication of what the writers are thinking, what they're trying to do with the show. Mm-hmm. So I kind of thought maybe this is it. I thought it was, we're trying to establish Amalia is not just the good guy. She also has some empathy here for Malady. And 
trying to give us an indication of why Mary's song is so important. And maybe it's because it can be, like you said, the sort of the siren song, right? It can be, it can bring every, let's bring everybody under this big umbrella and we can start to take care of all these people um, who are touched and are now ostracized from society because of it. It, it, I, I often bring the lines that I find are really written, but in terms of the parameters for what wins this segment, I absolutely agree, because it seems to be telegraphing the direction of the plot, particularly when it comes to Mary. That Mary is integrally important to where the show is going and what role she'll play in terms of connecting the, the I, I'm not to call them the mutant population, but sorry, that's a different, it's a different show together. Um, so yeah, I'm right there with you. I think it's a good pick. Thank you. That was the best line of the episode. Now we will go to favorite character arcs and... When we're done with that, we will award the booby prize. Spencer, who's your favorite character arc of episode two? If you're going to let me pick, dude, I'm picking Amalia, just because that feels like the, obvi- the obvious pick. Uh, I'm going to make you pick somebody different this time around. But she has had the most... Com- she is clearly the main character, it seems. I think this episode has hammered that home. She- I love how the actress is playing that role, and I love the interaction she's getting with other characters. Uh, the interactions she had with Frank were delightful. They were some of the best material the show has done yet, probably. The, inter- the interaction she had with Malady appear very important, and they're you know, some of the only only scenes I actually tolerated interacting with Malady. So you know, kudos. And we're getting more and more slowly appreciation on slowly about what the nature of her abilities are, and also what the nature of her past is, and how that informs her present. So that's legitimately interesting. And again, the actress sells it well. So I actually kind of like that character arc so far. Yeah, I'm gonna pick. Um... I mean, you're right, right? Amalia is our our main character. She's our protagonist. I also think Laura Donnelly, strongest actor on the show. No one is going to accuse this show of being an Emmy darling. I have that prediction. I don't know how many episodes (laughs) we're going to get. I don't know how many seasons we're going to get, Spencer. We're not going to get a lot of Emmy nominations for this show. Might get best costumes. We'll see. If you're going to start putting together some highlights for the Emmy folks, maybe you start doing it with Laura Donnelly because she's pretty good. Okay. Um, you got to pick somebody different, though. It's the nature of this. I'm picking only somebody on different, horse. and I'm picking Augustus. Why am I picking Augustus? He's all over the damn place in this episode. He goes from, I'm just I'm just waking up, having me a day, to, oh, my God, might have found my wife, to, oh, my God, <laughs> just had to insult her, time for a bender, to, oh, now I'm at a sex club, to, oh, now I'm having a threesome. Augustus had himself a day. That is the perfect way of summarizing what Augustus went through there. That is a day right there, man. That that is, Some people spend a lifetime putting together that run of events. You combine that into a single 24-hour period. Kudos, sir. Augustus had a hell of a day. I don't know how he tops it. I don't know. What do you do the next day? I mean, obviously, he's going to be nur- nursing a bit of a hangover. Does he Hugo it? Does he hair the dog, keep this, to keep this train running, run it back, see what happens? I don't know. I don't know if he's got it in him. But Augustus had himself a hell of a day. And he is also... Uh, I joke a little bit there, but he also did, because of the events of this episode, I think firmly, um, he is firmly installed as a main character, right? Because you're not just getting the fact that he is the meek little brother of Darth Lavinia. He's also now the love interest and the forlorn love interest of one of our main characters. And now he's also the business associate of Hugo. So he's he's rounding the bases. He's going to have a lot of influence on this show going forward. And he's also Bran friggin' Stark. So let's throw that out there. That's now. true. He's Bran Stark. We got to get him north of the wall, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, the, my God, he's got to be the three-eyed crow. This is what would have happened to Bran Stark if he didn't if he, if he didn't peep on two people and fall out of a tower. This would have been his future. Yeah, he's yeah, he's he's got to be the he's got to be the new three-eyed crow now. That's good. That's going to be his his role. All right. So that's my favorite character arc. Who wins your booby prize now? 
I'm really excited to hear who wins your booby prize this week because your booby prize last week was very controversial. Purposeful. Not so, just yes. among our listeners. We did get some comments about it. Among in our in my household. My wife listened to the episode and was very unhappy with you for picking Penance. <laughs> I, as, that, p- pissing off Sarah is something I aspire to, so I'm overjoyed to hear that. She was uh, very unhappy with you for what? picking Penance as the booby prize for your least favorite character. Uh, p- p- a, certain, a certain number of horses have passed Penance in this particular race. As much as her abilities just inherently annoy me, and I worry that she's just going to be used as a supporting develop the object that saves the plot kind of character um which i inherently find frustrating she had some good character interactions and she got to do some things on her own this episode they it wasn't much she still was just kind of vaguely hurting cats when it came to you know coordinating the event at lavinia's estate but it was something so i'll give her that and i she she got some fun lines of dialogue and a bit of characterization even as you noted if it seemed that her emotional reaction to Augustus kind of vaguely telling her off was, is it fair to call that over the top? Because it felt really over the top. It was way too much. I mean, and I don't, I just think that they're just trying to force this thing. The act. Yeah. I mean, I, I, are you really that upset because someone talks to you for 10 minutes at a, at a party and then says, oh, by the way, I got to go talk to my other friends now. I guess she is. I guess it's hard to just, believe. It's just hard it, to believe, especially it, from that character where she seems eminently reasonable in other uh, situations, it, except when she's trying to explain electricity. She doesn't sound reasonable at all. Then she sounds like an imbecile. But like uh, every other time, they're setting up like a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing, two star-crossed lovers, and so they're instantaneously in love with each other kind of thing, which I also find very frustrating. But again, she doesn't get the bottom prize this time around. Based on increased exposure this time around, the character arc that I just can't even stand to watch on the screen is Malady for me. It's going with a more obvious pick, but it has gotten to the point of where I almost just want to turn off volume when she, when that character is on the screen or when scenes are involving her. That they are. It's even worse now that they've given us some backstory. They've given us some reasons to you know be invested, and I just don't care because the character. It is utterly unengaging for me, and I don't think that's going to change. Um, so, Ballady is obviously a very good pick for the Booby Prize. Uh, I'm going to flip it on you this week, Spencer. I'm going You're going to go controversial. I'm going controversial. Booby Prize for me this week is Mary. Because, uh, first off, you can't leave a man at the altar and not give him an explanation and walk and skate with that. We need to be, we as a, an audience, need to be harsher on Mary for that, too. Um, she's getting dangerously close to being damsel in distress who needs to be white knighted all the time. This character is getting dangerously close to one note. Like I have this, oh, I have the beauty, the song, I have this beauty that is unassailable, God given, and I need to be protected by everyone else. And that is what I'm starting, the vibes I'm starting to get from Mary and I'm not liking it. Even better, it, her, her, you know, her beauty in this case is a song. She is literally one note. It is <laughs> good work. <laughs> I, I agree that they have done nothing with Mary yet. And it's all the more frustrating because highly people have just talked about how important she is. And it's very much tell it's very much telling rather than showing. We got one very interesting, unique scene involving her, and then we've spent an episode and a half just talking about how important it was rather than actually making it feel real. And so she almost feels more like she's a religious icon rather than she is an actual person at this point with how everybody's regarding her or how even the story's regarding her. So, yeah, I'm not particularly invested in her arc as much as I really do care about Frank Mundy so far, though. I'm not super interested in the year 2021 in 
pretty girl who needs saving episode after episode after episode who's helpless like that i'm a little over that storyline so please don't give me that um, Wait, let, let, let's make yeah, her a little little bit I'm, more deep than that i'm gonna warn you now man that she is gonna be the MacGuffin. she is gonna be the valuable artifact that propels the plot that people are gonna be fighting over from here on out get used uh, to it it's what it's song. gonna be yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm gonna be disappointed in that if that if they don't give her something else. I'm hoping we get a little bit more backstory with Mundy, um, but if she just continues to stiff arm him and say, "I'm gonna talk about this later." Oh, by the way, I left you at the. I'm not. I'm gonna keep beating this drum spencer. You don't leave a man at the altar and not and not what? tell him about it. So she's gonna be my villain real quick if she doesn't have that conversation. And we got to see inside Mundy's head with respect to how he's emotionally coping with this, and the answer is he's not coping that well. No, it's, it's not good. This man, <laughs> this man a, needs closure. It's a dark place in there. You don't want to go in Mundy's head. <laughs> this is a man who is deeply twisted between self-loathing and self-hatred and desperately not not trying to blame or be angry at the person who did this to him. He needs this kind of closure to be able to emotionally come to terms with what happened. And he's not getting that yet. And I think they're going to delay it a long time before we do. Um, follow-up question. Because there's, there's, there's at least there's several other characters that frustrate me. But there's two you've mentioned before piss you off. In this... In the horse race, you've seen them both now in two episodes, between Hugo and Dr. Haig, which horse is winning the boot, is getting, is, you know, running a hard second in your race for booby prize at that point? Uh, Dr. Haig. Hugo, little bit of a redemption story this, this week from Hugo. Um, he almost gets in a fist fight with a guy who's like 35 years a senior at a, at a, <laughs> would at have a kicked bar. his ass. Um, he, uh, inexplicably shows up in a gown and makeup at a sex club. Um, you know, that's that's a little bit more interesting than what I was getting from Hugo before. Hugo, a little bit of a redemption arc from Hugo. He is not, I would not put him even in my top three of BB Prize at this point. Because, um, it, it, you know, when you start just, you, you know, you just start like gown open, bare chested, makeup on, hey, let like here's the threesome is in that room kind of guy. Like you're starting to get a little interesting to me. I, I, I'm, I'm going to want to see what he's doing in later scenes. It just came to be. Did you ever watch Rome back in the day? Of course I did. Great show. That is such a Mark Anthony look from Rome. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> it's and a good call. <laughs> it almost helps me appreciate it more just because of how awesome that character was in that show. Yeah, that's a good call. And it's, you know, look, that that places him at a level of like interesting that's a little bit above us, some of the what? other characters. And then he sets Augustus up with the old heave-ho into the room with the with the two ladies. That's also pretty interesting, too, because, you know, he's the, Hugo seems like the type of guy. Um, we all knew these people. We all went to college this, with these people. Um, Spencer, you might you might know, well, you might be talking to one right now, where you do not get drunk <laughs> around. You don't get drunk around Hugo, because you don't know what's going to happen, right? It, um, it'll be fun. You'll remember it. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> So yeah, you you go, but no. yeah, but Haig still very boring. Um, you know the fact that he's he's a stormtrooper, a uh, little bit more interesting that we have Darth <laughs> Lavinia, but you know still still a pretty one note boring character. Well, want to make sure we're on the same page there because Hugo's always gonna be a character that I hate because I think we're in many ways supposed to hate him and he particularly annoys me. But he's at least interesting. He's at least compelling to a certain a little bit degree. more this episode for sure. Yeah. Yes. Even if he almost just feels like he exists to fulfill the HBO nudity quota. Oh, yeah. I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and, you know, HBO does that thing that's so funny where they always put like the this the here's the things to look out for. Like <laughs> yeah. adult content. The ratings, yeah. I saw nudity pop up and I was like, whoop, getting some Hugo. All right, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> 
man, you're going to be shocked when we get you know, a, a nudity scene involving just Lavinia or something later on in the episode. Not, Hugo doesn't even appear, but the HBO is working the nudity in If we get a nudity scene that does not involve Hugo, I will be stunned. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely yeah. stunned. Okay. All right. I think that wraps up our coverage of episode two. As I mentioned, you know, thanks everybody for joining us. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this series, Spencer. Um, I, I think that what we saw in the first episode was disjointed complicated heart to follow they started to get the car between the lines here and i think that we're going to end up with a story that we can we can follow week by week and really have a good time doing let's end on it then what is your rating this episode compared to last so last week i gave a six and a half this week i'm going to give a i'm going to give a seven and a half i actually got to a point you know obviously when we we had been planning to do the nevers uh we had the podcast ready to go our coverage ready to go so the I was obviously watching it in part the first episode out of like I mean, we have a job to do you know professional broadcasters here Spencer mm-hmm. um, by the back half of episode two I put my notes down and said I just want to watch I'm enjoying this I just want to watch it nice so we got to that point so I'm gonna do seven and a half what about you you said famously four and a half for the first episode coming out hard initially what what's your rating a two point two you know <laughs> Spencer's yeah. done. No, I mean, it's no, it's a no, one-man no. podcast on the way out. <laughs> it, it, it was definitely an improvement. I actually legitimately enjoyed parts of this episode. I would give it. I'm going to go above average this time. I'm going to go five and a half, starting to approach even maybe a six. There, there was some legitimate good material here, even if the frustrating is clearly going to keep frustrating me. Um, I do want to shout out a comment that we got. The person who corrected me that we're supposed to call, uh, not supposed to call it, or just your name, is Penance, not Penance. So thank you for that. This person also pointed out a lot of Christ imagery in the show, which mm-hmm. um, Spaceship is it across. Um, Amalia gets hit by three little dots, Trinity. Um, you know, she brought up a lot of good things. So that might be something to look out for. Uh, some of the some of the Christ uh, Christianity imagery in the show going forward to see if that continues. But uh, appreciate you leaving that comment. Uh, please, everybody, if you're listening and you want to get in the conversation with us, go to MangumTalks.com. We have upper right-hand corner. Click Contact Us. Put your comment. It will come straight to me. I will curate them and tell Spencer about them. Um, but we do. I will read every comment that we get in unless we just get absolutely bombarded. I'm committed to doing that because I appreciate listener feedback and I appreciate our listeners. So thanks, everybody, for listening. I enjoyed doing this episode with you, Spencer. We will be back next week for Episode 3 of the Nevers here on the Nevers More Podcast. Looking forward to it.